It's been said, the one truth we learn from history is that we do not learn from history. Mistakes get repeated. Failures get passed down. And that's what happened during the days of the judges. The nation Israel found themselves trapped in a reoccurring cycle. Five words explain 350 years of history. Sin. The people would forsake God. They would worship other gods, idols. Servitude. Because of their sin, God allows their enemies to rise up and oppress them. Supplication. Israel gets tired of being oppressed, and so they put away their idols, and they cry to God for deliverance, which brings salvation. God raises up a judge to lead his people into victory, which finally serenity, a peace comes on the heels of that victory until the people sin again and start the cycle all over. Seven times this pattern gets repeated in the book of Judges. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, serenity. The question, though, is how many times has this cycle been repeated in your life? What was cyclical for Israel is also a pattern for people today. I know people who are always either getting into trouble or getting out of trouble. That was the problem for Israel. If we stay focused on Jesus, we'll experience consistent, constant victory, not the ups and downs that plagued ancient Israel. Last week, we left Israel in the midst of this cycle. Oppressed by the Philistines and the Ammonites, The Hebrews cry out to God in true repentance. And in response, God raises up a leader. He's introduced to us here in the first two verses of Judges chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Jephthah was a man of outstanding qualities, but his character was overlooked by his parentage. He was a bastard child, the son of a harlot, and his half-brothers would never let him forget it. They were the legitimate heirs, not Jephthah. But guys, understand... With God, there are no illegitimate children. For that matter, there are no accidental children. I hate it when I hear a a parent refer to a child as their accident. There are no accidents in the plan of God. God is the giver of life. And every human being is valuable to God. It's tragic that any man would be judged by the circumstances of his birth or the mistakes of his parents. Issues he has no control over whatsoever. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I recall his famous line, Judge a man not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. And that should be expanded to include the legitimacy of a person's birth. That shouldn't be a criteria. 
person should be respected for who he is, not the origins of his birth. You know, today you'll hear businesses bragging about being equal opportunity employers, but I believe only God is void of all bigotry and prejudice. God is the one true equal opportunity employer. And here God recruits a man that everyone else rejects, and his name is Jephthah. Verse 3 tells us, Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Jephthah failed to find acceptance among the people of God, so he went out and found it among worthless men. Could it be that the bars and bathhouses of Metro Atlanta are filled tonight with people who, like Jephthah, have sought to find acceptance and love from the people of God, but were rejected. Could it be? Their need for friendship, their need for support, their need for understanding has driven them out so that they're now hanging out with worthless people. Guys, we are the church. We are the body of Christ. We are the family of God. We're not a hotel for saints. We're a hospital for sinners. And we need to be reaching out, opening our arms, loving those that the Lord brings us. You remember, while on earth, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. The despised, the rejected, they flocked to Jesus. He embodied God's love, and so should we. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, opens with the story of a Chicago prostitute. This woman was homeless. She was sick. She was near starvation. She'd do anything for a buck. Philip had a friend who was speaking to her on the subway when he asked her, Have you ever been to a church for help? She responded, Church? Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. And Philip Yancey concludes, Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcomed among his followers. Is that true? Is that true of us? Is there room in our church for the illegitimates of society? Do we draw people in or do we turn people away? I guess the question boils down to how much do we really want to be like Jesus? It's interesting, the elders of Israel, they shunned Jephthah until they needed him. A fierce battle was ahead, and it required a man of courage and skill and daring. And all of a sudden, Jephthah's pedigree didn't matter as much as his nerve, as his character. And so they summoned Jephthah to lead them into battle against the Ammonites. Jephthah makes the elders promise that they won't abandon him once the victory has been won, that they'll continue to recognize him as their leader. They agree And so he moves into action. First, he sends a warning to the king of Ammon. But it goes unheeded. And then in verse 29, we're told, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. But understand, the anointing of the Holy Spirit doesn't make you immune from mistakes. 
We're going to find that though he was filled with the Spirit, later he makes a very rash vow. This is something we need to understand. You remember Gideon was filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet he still doubted God's promise. Later in Judges, the Spirit of the Lord will come mightily upon Samson to defeat the Philistine army. But his superhuman strength doesn't ensure him a victory even over his own libido. You see, the filling of the Holy Spirit is wonderful. It's joyous. But it doesn't guarantee holy living. Chapter is filled with the Holy Spirit, but he still makes a rash vow. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need God's power in our lives, but it's not an instant ticket to holiness. Godly living and moral purity is a work of the Spirit, but it also involves my submission to the will of God. The renewing of my mind by God's Word, the preservation of a humble and a repentant attitude, all these things are crucial and important. Chapter praise to the Lord in verses 30 and 31. He says, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, don't do this, Chapter. This is a mistake. You're being rash. But he does it anyway. Then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. The next few verses describe the victory over the people of Ammon. And in verse 34, Jephthah comes home victorious. And the first thing he sees walk through the doors of his house to greet him is his only child, his daughter, daddy's little princess. And Jephthah rips his clothes. He grieves because he's made a rash, unnecessary vow. But he won't go back on his promise. He does give his daughter as a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, some folks have suggested that Jephthah offered his daughter as a human sacrifice. But that would be contrary to the law of God. What's more likely is that he turned his daughter over to serve the Lord in the tabernacle. She would remain a virgin and she would serve only the Lord. And this is why in verses 38 and 39, she seems more concerned about mourning her virginity than the loss of her life. Jephthah makes a rash vow. And as a result, he has no grandbabies. In chapter 12, civil war erupts between Jephthah and the tribe of Gad, who live in Gilead, east of Jordan. And Ephraim, a tribe that lived on the west bank, fought against them. Now Ephraim's squabble was pretty petty. They're upset because Jephthah went to battle to fight against Ammon and didn't wait for them to come along. And in verse 2, Jephthah explains that he sent word to them. They just didn't come. The Ephraimites... Remind me of the folks who always show up just after the job is finished. Well, if you just called me, I would have helped. <laughs> hey, 
Ephraim knew the circumstances. They knew the importance of moving out. They should have anticipated the need. And I have found that a willing spirit will foresee the need. It won't have to be asked. It'll be on the prowl for opportunities to serve. Jephthah defeats Ephraim. And he sets up a crossing guard on the banks of the Jordan to keep the men of Ephraim from infiltrating into Gilead. When a person approached, they were asked to say the word Shibboleth, or flowing stream. But the dialect spoken by the men of Ephraim made it difficult for them to pronounce that sh sound. And so it would always come out Sibboleth. And so when they got to the river and they were asked to speak the password, if they said Sibboleth, it gave them away. They were from Ephraim. If they said Shibboleth, well, then they were truly men of Gilead and were allowed to pass. Originally, this was a clever tactic. But it's really sad that it was needed at all. Israel was a family, 12 tribes, but one nation. Likewise, the church is a family. And it's tragic when brothers and sisters in Christ begin to squabble with each other and refuse to dwell in unity. The word shibboleth, believe it or not, is in our English dictionary. It's defined as a test for determining if you belong. And it's sad that certain shibboleths exist even in our churches. Oh, she doesn't dress the way we do. Oh, he doesn't share the hobbies that we have. She doesn't listen to our type of music. They don't live in the right kind of neighborhood. That family is not the right color to be included in our group. Guys, it grieves God's heart when little cliques form in the church and they use various shibboleths to decide who's in and who's out. Let's not resent our differences. Let's not even tolerate our differences. Instead, let's celebrate our differences. Because it's our diversity that adds to our strength. Rather than develop little shibboleths to keep each other divided and to keep certain people out, let's look for ways to include people, to open up our hearts to people. And by all means, all means let's stay focused on the one commonality that transcends all of our differences and that's our Lord Jesus. The end of chapter 12 tells us that for 25 years after the death of Jephthah, three men judged Israel. Ibzan of Bethlehem, Elon of Zebulun, and Abdon of Ephraim. Then we're told in chapter 13, again the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The cycle begins again. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Verse 2. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink. 
and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, as we mentioned this morning, the vow of the Nazarite consisted of three elements. He was not to eat or drink of the fruit of the vine. He was not to cut his hair and he was not to touch anything that was dead. In essence, the Nazarite was a walking billboard. He was an advertisement for godly values, pleasure, appearance, and pride is what makes the world go round. But God wants his people to be different. And the Nazarite was God's poster boy. He was the example held up for others to follow. The vow of the Nazarite demonstrated to the people of Israel that real life is found in the spiritual, not the physical. In the internal, not the external. And in the eternal, not the temporal. The wine represented pleasure. The knotty hair represented appearance. And then not touching anything dead represented, you know, the pride of life or reward. And by refraining from those things, the Nazarite was making a profound statement. That real life, real joy, real meaning is found in the spiritual, in the internal, in the eternal. And the child born to Mrs. Manoah was to be a lifelong Nazarite. Now, in answer to his prayer, the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah and his wife a second time. And Manoah asks for more information about the boy. But the angel of the Lord reveals more information about himself. And in verse 18, the messenger reveals his name to Manoah. He says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus is referred to prophetically as wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I believe that the angel, and the word literally means messenger, of the Lord here in this passage was none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. So often, like Manoah, we pray for more information about God's plan. But what we really need is a revelation of God's person. Rather than more details about the mission, we need a clearer vision of the Messiah. We don't need to know where we're going. We need to know who we're following. That's what we really need to know. We need to see Jesus. Get a clear vision of Jesus and it will guide you and propel you. Now when Manoah offers food to the angel of the Lord, he tells Manoah to offer a burnt offering to God. He doesn't want the food. Take it and offer it to God. And we're told in verse 19, So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, 
They fell on their faces to the ground. And look what Manoah says to his wife in verse 22. We have seen God. Obviously, this messenger was no ordinary angel. Mr. and Mrs. Manoah had seen God himself. And I believe the angel of the Lord who appeared to them had to have been Jesus. Verse 24 tells us, So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, which means sunny, S-U-N-N-Y. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed old Sonny, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Menahem Dan. And thus begins the story of one of the most interesting characters in all of the Bible, God's strong man, Samson. Unlike the other judges that were called by God to rally the nation Israel and to fight against the enemy, no one really came to help Samson. No one rallied around him. Samson was left on his own, and he became a one-man wrecking crew. He was a Hebrew vigilante. He was the Rambo of ancient Israel. He would tie that piece of cloth around his head and tie it up back here like this. Then the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him and he would wreak havoc on the Philistines. Samson, though, had one problem. It was a lust for the ladies. You might say he was a he-man with a she-addiction. And moral failure eroded Samson's commitment to God and eventually caused God to put Samson on the shelf to abandon him, to cut off the blessing. You start to see what I mean in chapter 14. Samson goes down to Timnah and he sees a Philistine filly. He likes her and he wants her for his wife. And he insists that his parents arrange a marriage. Samson doesn't care that this girl is a Gentile and that God has forbidden Hebrews to marry Gentiles. All Samson cares about is satisfying his sexual desires. He wants this girl. Samson sets out for Timnah to see his sweetie when a lion crosses his path. And in verse 6 we're told, The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, And he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. When he goes to Timnah a second time, he finds that a swarm of bees have made honey in this lion's carcass. The honey makes for a nice snack and the whole thing also makes for a nice riddle that we'll see later. But notice... Samson broke his vow, the vow of a Nazarite, long before that infamous haircut. He broke the first, second, the first part of the vow when he went down to the vineyards of Timnah. He broke the second part of the vow when he touched that dead carcass to remove the honey. You see, it was a slow deterioration in Samson's life and in his commitment to God. Samson marries this young Philistine, and at his bachelor's party, Samson wants to impress his Philistine guests. And so he bets them that he knows a riddle they can't answer. 
And in verse 14, he says, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Answer the riddle. (laughs) And what makes it interesting is that 30 new suits from the men's warehouse are riding on the correct answer. That's what they wager. Now, the Philistines, they don't want to lose this bet. 30 new suits from the men's warehouse, that could be spendy. And so they threaten Samson's bride. And she goes back to Samson and she turns on the tears. And she pries the answer out of her he-man hubby. And then she goes back and she tells the Philistines... And just before the time has elapsed, when the answer is due, these men walk up to Samson and they tell him, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And immediately Samson smells a rat. He knows what's happened. And in verse 18, Samson shows off his way with words. He says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. (laughs) if you had not plowed with my heifer (laughs) in verse 19 we're told then the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men took their apparel and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle Samson gave them clothes all right but he took them off the backs of 30 Philistines. We go down to the mall for clothes. Samson went out to the brawl for clothes. He mauled the Philistines, you might say, and came back with 30 new suits of clothing. And so his anger was aroused, and he went back up to his father's house. Now, adding insult to injury... The Philistines give Samson's bride to the best man. They should know by now that making Samson mad is not in their best interests. And when he discovers the betrayal, he goes out and he captures 300 foxes. He ties their tails together and he connects a torch between each of their tails. Then he lights all of the torches He scares the foxes and turns them loose in the Philistine fields and it just devastates the crop, burns it to the ground. The Philistines, though, they retaliate. They torch the house of Samson's wife and sadly she dies in the fire. You might say the Samson and the Philistines are fighting fire with fire. In chapter 15, verse 8, Samson again fights the Philistines and we're told he attacked them hip and thigh. That's an interesting way of saying he stomped them. It was a thorough trouncing. This time the Philistines call for backup. And they bring in an army to arrest him. One thousand men to pick up one man. But they soon learn that that's not enough. The Philistines camp against a city called Lehi. And they order the men of Judah to turn over Samson. Samson allows his countrymen to bind his hands and turn him over to the Philistines. But when he meets the enemy, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. 
Samson picks up the jawbone of a donkey and kills 1,000 Philistines. Amazing. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus, he says that this conquest went to Samson's head. And so his song of victory in verse 16 was really just a portion of a bigger boast. In other words, Samson is jawing about the jawbone. Kind of promoting himself. He's really proud of what he's done. Josephus tells us, Samson said that this did not come to pass by the assistance of God, but that his success was ascribed to his own courage. Samson. Proves that there were actually two jawbones of a donkey at work in this story. And this is why God allows Samson to be overtaken with thirst in verse 18. It humbles Samson. And it reminds him that without God's help and supply, he is totally powerless. And it proves that God can either use the jawbone of a donkey or he can shut one up. Either way. In chapter 16, Samson slips into the Philistine city of Gaza to visit a harlot. And when news leaks out that Samson's in the brothel, the Philistines surround the place. And a squad of Philistines lock the gates of the city so he can't escape. But at midnight, Samson comes out and he rips out the embedded posts of the gates. And he uses this gate to bulldoze over the enemy. Then he carries the gates to the top of a hill. It all was a huge embarrassment for the men of the city of Gaza. It was a humiliating defeat, sort of like 62 to 7. If you're an NFL fan. You see, the gates of an ancient city were strong enough to keep out an entire army. But they couldn't stop one man under the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, the dilemma with Samson is really the contradiction between his personal life and his public ministry. Here's a man who walks out of a hooker's house and is used by God to do the miraculous, to win a victory. How can this be? And again, as I said this morning, I believe it's proof of God's mercy, God's grace. That God is willing to use imperfect vessels. If he wasn't willing to do so, he wouldn't use any of us. God was patient with Samson's moral lapses for 20 years. But there came a point when enough was enough. God is willing to put up with a weakness until that weakness becomes an act of defiance. And that's what happened to Samson. Verse 4 of chapter 16 marks the end of Samson's usefulness. He says, Afterward it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Zorak, whose name was Delilah. Even though God continued to use Samson, every time he yielded to temptation, the condition of his heart grew worse. Notice the deterioration. The first time he's seen lusting for a woman, 
At least he tries to do the honorable thing. He goes down to Timnah and he marries the girl. The second time, he settles for a one-night stand with a prostitute. But it's done in secret. And it's not a permanent union. He still obviously senses some shame for his sin. But this third time, Samson has thrown away all restraint. He just goes down and shacks up with Delilah. Makes no bones about it. It's an open, brazen act of defiance against God. You see how he's deteriorated. There's a progression here. There's a seedy slide. Samson has a lust problem that he never turns from. He tries to legitimize it. Then he privatizes it. Finally, he secularizes his whole outlook to accommodate it. He gives up the fight for virtue and he gives in to sin. Guys, when you give up the fight, it's really all over. As long as there's the want to, as long as there's the willingness, God is able to work. God is able to help. God can do a miracle in your life. But when you give up the want to, when you give in to sin, and you no longer fight against the lust and the temptation, then it's basically over. It's a slippery slope down to the edge of the cliff after you've given up. Samson becomes brazen here. He becomes shameless in his rebellion against God and in his pursuit of his own lusts. Now the Philistines, they come to Delilah and they offer her big bucks if she can discover the secret of Samson's strength. Which brings up a point. If Samson was a Bill Goldberg lookalike, a hefty, beefy, muscle-bound hunk, why is everyone wanting to know the secret of his strength? It would be obvious. Just keep him off the steroids. Don't give him his protein supplements. It would have been obvious what the secret of his strength was. And this is why I believe that Samson had an average build. He had a slight physique, perhaps. There wasn't a ripple in his shirt. But when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon him, he exuded superhuman strength. And they want to know the secret. Samson just sort of plays with Delilah at first. If you bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, if you bind me with new ropes, if you weave my hair into a loom, but each time... She tries out his suggestion. He wakes up. He pops the cords. He easily frees himself. Finally, in verse 15, Delilah questions Samson's devotion. How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? The old, if you really love me, line. Again, that is the stupidest line in the world. If you really love me, what? If you really love her, you'll protect her purity. If you really love him, you'll honor his vow to God. You won't use that other person for a momentary gratification of your lustful desires. Rather, you'll love that person enough to keep them pure and to keep them devoted to God. 
She says, how can you say you love me? But this really is the ultimate issue. Where is Samson's heart? For a time, despite his failures, his heart belonged to God. He wanted to please the Lord. But he kept yielding in moments of weakness. And it was this repeated compromise that eventually took its toll. And now he no longer cares. Where is his heart? It used to be God's. Now it's shifted. Now it belongs to this girl. Where's your heart tonight? Who do you really love? Has the object of your lust become more important to you than your devotion to God? That's what happened to Samson. Verse 16 tells us, And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death, that he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. This is the one part of his vow that he had kept. You see, his long hair was really his last tie between him and God. It was the last token that Samson could give that would prove that he cared about pleasing God, that he really wanted to follow God. And as long as he had that long hair, it was evidence of his willingness. But the moment he let it get cut off, the moment he told his secret, it was an indication that that desire was no longer there, that he had given up the fight, that he had given in completely to sin, that virtue no longer mattered. What really matters to you tonight? The glory of God or your own selfish desires? Delilah lulls Samson to sleep on her knees. It's been said if Samson had been on his knees, he wouldn't have gotten lulled to sleep. A man comes in, cuts off his hair. And when he awakes, he goes out to break the bonds on his hands, but he can't. And verse 20 recounts, so he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. How tragic. In one sense, you can say that a single woman did what a thousand Philistine soldiers couldn't do. Bring down Samson. But it wasn't just Delilah. It was the lifestyle that had been built up over years. It was the tolerance for sin. It was the accommodation that he had made with a lust. It was Samson never taking action to deal with his problem. It was the cavalier attitude that he showed that eventually caused him to secularize his whole outlook and to justify his sin and to give up the fight for virtue. Samson was a man who played with a poisonous snake And it finally reached up and bit him. You see, Samson's life teaches us that sin doesn't just produce momentary failure. Rather, it saps the life out of our commitment to God. It diminishes our desire for God. And if you give into it long enough over time, it will completely destroy your desire and heart for God. The Philistines immediately begin to torture this man who has tortured them for 20 years. 
They poke out his eyes. They parade him through the temple of Dagon, their god. They give credit to Dagon for delivering their enemy into their hands. How it must have broken Samson's heart to know that he's become the trophy of a false god. And isn't it ironic that they pluck out Samson's eyes? The problem his whole life had been his wandering eyes. And Samson becomes blinded so that he can really see. Since he has never dealt with his problem, God deals with it for him. And through his blindness, he comes to see what really matters in life. It's all about pleasing God, serving God. Verse 22 makes a passing comment. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. In other words, a fresh commitment was still possible. Samson had been shelved. But the shelf doesn't have to be permanent. One day, Samson is in the temple of Dagon, the object of these Philistine jeers and insults. He's drawn quite a crowd. On the roof of the temple, there are 3,000 gawkers. The former strong man of Israel is tied between two supporting posts. And Samson prays his final prayer in verse 28. O Lord God. Remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson pushes against those pillars, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him mightily, and the pagan temple is destroyed. The posts kick out, and the whole structure turns to rubble. It caves in on itself. And verse 30 tells us, So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. Samson could finally see what life is all about. It's not about women and pleasure. It's not about his own lust and his own happiness and his own pleasure. Samson's come to realize that life is really all about experiencing God, knowing God. Counting for Christ, bringing glory to the Lord. And that became his desire, even to the point of death. Not even life itself mattered more to Samson at the end than his love for God and his desire to bring God glory. How desperate are you to know God? Do you want to please God more than life itself? Do you want to know the power of God in your life? Are you willing to recommit yourself to Him? Will it take a blindness for you to really see that Jesus is all that really matters in this life? Even if you have been put on the shelf, God can use you again. If you'll just commit yourself afresh to Him, your hair can grow back. The last five chapters of the book of Judges, along with the book of Ruth, provide us with three episodes from this gruesome period of Hebrew history. Ruth really is a ray of sunshine on a cloudy day. It shows that there were a few people during this period willing to place principle ahead of pleasure. But Ruth was the exception rather than the rule. The two stories in Judges are more indicative of the times. These stories reek with spiritual sewage. And you'll want to hold your nose for the rest of tonight's study. So with one hand, turn the pages. With the other hand, just squeeze your little nostrils shut. It stinks. 
Judges 17 through 21 reveals just how far a society deteriorates when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. These chapters are vivid evidence that when God's rules get thrown out of the game of life, man, the game gets ugly and brutal and cutthroat. I call it the Outback Steakhouse philosophy. Outback Steakhouse has this commercial where a truck load full of good-looking guys and gorgeous girls drive past the warning signs out on the beach. They violate the posted laws, and they have a fun and frolicking party on the beach, complete with blooming onions and choice steaks and Aussie fries and brewskis for everybody. And all the while you watch the commercial, the spokesman is chanting the motto, No rules, just right. That's the philosophy of people today. No rules, just right. Well, let me tell you, Outback Steakhouse doesn't really believe that. I was in there one night. (laughs) And I asked the waiter if I could substitute some cheese fries for regular fries. And he said, no, you can't do that. That's against the rules. And I said, wait a minute. I watched the commercials. You keep saying it out back, no rules, just right. Well, I learned quickly that the motto only applies when it works in Outback's favor. And that's also what happens in an amoral society. People make rules, all right. All societies have rules. But when you toss God's rules out of the game, it becomes a contest to see who can get the power so they can make rules that will serve their own interests. And it gets bloody and it gets nasty. Just consider these last five chapters. The first story in chapters 17 and 18 centers around a man by the name of Micah. I like to call him Mixed Up Mike. You've got some friends just like him, I'm sure. Chapter 17 demonstrates just how goofy things have gotten. Micah steals some money from his own mom. When she places a curse on the thief, Micah gets scared and he fesses up. His mom then says, okay, no big deal. It's money that I've dedicated to Jehovah God so that I could purchase an idol for my son. This is crazy. First, there's no morality here. She considers this heist no big deal. Second, there's no commitment to God's truth. She pays lip service to God. She's doing this, she says, for Jehovah God. But she should have known from the word of God The second of the Ten Commandments had forbidden the use of idols or graven images in the worship of God. She claims to know God, but she violates His Word. This is a mixed-up situation. Mixed-up Mike even builds a little shrine in, in the house. He makes his own son a priest. 
We know that Micah was from Ephraim, but God's law said that the only house of worship was to be the tabernacle and the only priests were to be the Levites. What's going on here? Here is a man that seems spiritual, that talks about God, that has even set up a little worship of God, but his spirituality has very little to do with the Bible. It's a hodgepodge of paganism and Judaism and the occult. Hey, welcome to today's world. Every survey, every poll that gets taken insists that spirituality is up while commitment to biblical truth is down. In the book, American Demographics, authors Semino and Latin Tell us what kind of religion people today are searching for. They write, it's a religion of the heart, not of the head. It's practical and personal, more about stress reduction than salvation, more therapeutic than theological. It's about feeling good, not being good. It's it's as much about the body as it is the soul. You see, today's spirituality is a convenient spirituality without morality, without authority. Jesus is Lord would never fit into modern notions of spirituality. Women's Day magazine even reports that the big trend today is people worshiping in little shrines that they make in their own homes. People are setting aside their own little rooms and making their own little shrines and they're gathering together in small groups so that they can worship at these shrines and before their Buddhas and so forth. It sounds just like mixed up Mike. You see, today's spirituality is a quagmire of religious sentiment, but it's divorced from biblical truth. And it's a heretical blend. It has nothing to do with real Christianity whatsoever. In verse 7, into the picture stumbles a bona fide priest, a Levite. And Micah sees this as an opportunity to gain legitimacy for his own little religion here. And so he hires this man as a live-in priest. And he says in verse 13, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. He's treating this Levite as a good luck charm. You see, Micah's faith was nothing more than superstition. And that's the faith of many people today. It's nothing more than an empty superstition. Micah goes out, he hires his own personal guru, his spiritual trainer here. The whole setup is a gross violation of God's law. If you'll drop down to verse 31... You read the author's reminder. He says, So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. These private centers of worship were forbidden. Everyone was to come up to the tabernacle in Shiloh. You see, real spirituality, true biblical spirituality... True contact with God can't be personalized to your own private taste. Religion a la carte. 
may be popular with men, with people today, but it will never gain the approval of God. We've learned it before. The true worship of God worships God only in the way He wants to be worshipped. If I really love my wife, I'm not going to love her in a way that's convenient to me. I'm going to love her in a way that she desires to be loved. And if you truly worship God and love God, you will love Him and worship Him in the way that He desires to be worshipped, not in the way that is convenient to you. And if you want to know how God wants to be worshipped, open up this book. He's already told us. But the story gets worse. Rather than wait for God to give them an allocation of the land, some of the tribe of Dan become impatient and they set out to find their own territory. And Micah's priest helps out their spies as they pass through Ephraim. So when Dan and its 600 troops return, they also stop off at Micah's house. And while Micah's away on business, the Danites make his priest a better offer. And so this Levite, he just picks up his little cottage religion and he moves north to be the priest for the tribe of Dan. And you can say Micah gets what he deserves. When everyone makes up their own rules, even their own religion, who's to say what's right and wrong? It's okay for Micah to hire his own priest. Why can't the Danites? And Micah tracks them down and he demands that they return his priest, all the paraphernalia that he's taken with him. And in verse 26, we learn the outcome. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. You see, when you toss out God's law, then it's might that makes right. Then suddenly, the rules that you play by are the ones that are set by the person in power. In Scripture, we learn that ungodliness always produces unrighteousness. You see, when a person believes wrong, they will eventually behave wrong. Another way to put it, when God goes, anything goes. And this final grisly story in Judges shows how utterly immoral ungodly people can be. This last story will make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Another Levite from Benjamin, he takes a woman from Bethlehem to be his concubine. She refuses to be faithful to him and leaves him. But this Levite goes after her. He goes down to her home in Bethlehem to retrieve her. And according to custom, she belongs to him. And so after several days, she reluctantly comes along and they head back to Ephraim and they pass through the town of Gibeah. There an old man takes them in for the night. And that's where the story really gets ugly. We read in chapter 19, verse 22. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man saying, Bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him carnally. Sodomites in Gibeah. Now, here's where we learn 
why the concubine left this Levite in the first place. He really doesn't love her at all. This is a man who's only concerned about himself. And so he grabs the girl and he throws her out the door of the house and gives her to these sexual predators in order to pacify them. The men of Gibeah, they gang rape the young woman. And in verse 25, we're told, they knew her and abused her all night until morning. Only when the sun comes up does the pack break up and disperse. Reminds me of what happened in New York Central Park a few years ago. When a group of teenagers went wilding, as they call it. It was a wild rampage of mayhem and anarchy. And when an innocent jogger crossed their path, they took the lady jogger and they gang-raped her and they brutalized her. Hey, not much has changed in the last 3,400 years. Isn't it amazing what happens when you throw God's laws out of the equation and every man does what's right in his own eyes? See how brutal, see how immoral a society you create where women aren't even respected as people. They're just viewed as objects. It's tragic. But our society's headed in the same direction. Now when the Levite goes outside to saddle his donkey, the next morning he finds the concubine lying on the doorstep. When he tells her to get up, she doesn't move. She's dead. And so he throws her body on the back of the donkey and he returns to Ephraim. And there he takes out a knife. And he carves up her corpse into 12 pieces. And he puts the pieces back onto the donkey. And he sends the donkey out throughout Israel. And when the Hebrews see this crime, they become alarmed. The savagery of this crime concerns them. And they gather in Mizpah to quiz this Levite about what has happened. And in chapter 20, he recounts the shocking story. And this incident sets off a bloody civil war. Thousands of people die as a consequence. The tribe of Benjamin sides with their brothers from Gibeah, and they go to battle with the other ten tribes. The Benjamites proved to be ferocious fighters. In fact, they have a 700-man special forces unit from Gibeah. All 700 men were left-handed, we're told. They were skilled with a slingshot. We're told that they could hit a mark the width of a hair. Slingshot snipers, you might say. And it takes an ambush. But Benjamin is finally defeated. Only 600 men survive. Now, since the other Israelis have vowed not to give their daughters in marriage to any of the men from Benjamin, the 600 survivors are now in tough straits. And since the elders of Israel don't want to see the extinction of one of their tribes, they come up with a solution. They find a city that has refused to come up and fight, that didn't join in this battle. They should have, but they didn't. They look around, they find a city, Jabesh Gilead qualifies. And since 
Jabesh Gilead needs to be punished, they go down and they slay all of the people of Jabesh Gilead except 400 virgin daughters. Then they take these daughters and they give them to the Benjamites to marry. But they're 200 men short, 200 women short. And so this time the elders drop a hint. They tell the Benjamites that there's this annual feast that happens right outside the city of Shiloh. And the young virgin maidens, they come out and they dance in the fields. And so if they'll take the 200 guys and send them up to Shiloh, let them hide out in the bushes. Then when the girls come out to do their dance and all, they can just jump out of the bushes, grab them a wife, take them back home. And when the men of Shiloh come down and complain, we'll just say, hey, tough stuff. It's your patriotic duty. Just live with it. What a mess. What a mess. What kind of convoluted solutions? What kind of just gross situations you create when you throw out God's rules. And it all gets summed up in the last verse of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And there we end tonight's Bible study on an upbeat note. That's the way the book ends. You wish it ended differently. But that's what happens when everyone does what's right in their own eyes and throws God's rules out of the game. It gets ugly. It gets brutal. It gets confused and convoluted. It turns into a mess, a royal mess. We're done, though, so you can take your fingers off your nose and breathe again. It was a stinker, but it's over. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warnings. Lord, if there's a truth that we've gleaned from tonight's study, Lord, it should be that that we can't trust our own wisdom. We can't make up our own rules. That we need a higher authority. We need someone who knows more than we do. We need you, Lord, to be our God, to be our authority, to be our Lord and our Master. We need for you to call the shots, Lord. You know how best life should be lived. Lord, help us to consult with you. Help us to read your word and know your truth and live our lives accordingly. Lord, I pray that if we've strayed from you like Samson, that tonight we would, we would repent, we would turn, we would come back to you, Lord. And we would realize that Jesus is really all that matters. And we would deny our own lusts and deal with our problems and put our eyes on you and begin to live for your glory and for your honor, not our convenience. 
Lord, help us to realize that there's more to it than just this life, this world. There's an eternal world yet to come. And help us, Lord, to set ourselves apart for spiritual joys, for internal beauty, for eternal reward. And not be lulled asleep on the knees of Delilah. We love you, Lord. Encourage our hearts tonight in Jesus' name. And everyone said, why don't we all stand?